We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. The moment, maybe perhaps we're on a playground, we are in the mall. I guess if people still go to the mall, I don't know if that's still a thing. Perhaps the playground, perhaps even here at church. You know, a, a, a nice toddler's coming, he's, he's walking, and he's playing. And then his, his dad comes, and, and he says, All right, come on, Timmy, it's, it's time to go. To see the toddler respond, No! And run off. You've been there. You're a parent, you've been there. As a father of eight, I have been there many times. But you, you know what it's like, don't you? Because you're witnessing it. You see it. You, you see that moment where the authority in that moment in time is, is giving instructions to the subordinate, the child, who is supposed to listen to that father, but clearly he's not. And so as as a bystander, you're wondering, what's going to happen? What will happen in this moment? Most of the time, you know, typically it's, all right, Timmy, uh, I don't think you heard me. I, I, I said, I said, come on. Timmy says, no. Uh, all, all, all right, Timmy, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count to three. Then he proceeds his upward progression to three. Still doesn't happen. Oh, he just hasn't had a nap today. <laughs> He's just hungry. The father, he does everything he can to make excuses for this young child as to why he is not obeying his father. Sinner, that's how we often view authority. That authority actually never gives commands that are expected to be followed. Authority just gives suggestions. It would be nice if you could do this. It would be nice if you could do that. And unfortunately, we as fathers, we as parents in general, contribute to that, giving a a faulty view of authority. And oftentimes, because of the way that we parent or because of the way authority is in, in, in our culture, we often think that God is that same type of authority. That when God gives a command, when, when, when God calls us to do something or be something in, in Scripture, that, that it's optional. That maybe God's like, oh, no, come on, Brian. I'll, come on. No, you're tired. No, you're hungry. No, life's hard. I, I know. Uh, Brian, I don't, I don't think you heard me. Brian, don't make me count to three. We treat God like that. As if he's not serious about what he calls us to do. Who he calls us to be. We're going to read a parable this morning that really gets at the heart of the authority of Jesus in this life. How serious he takes 
His commandments to be fruitful in this life, to, to steward the gospel in this life. And it's no small matter, church. It's no small matter. And so I, pr- I pray this morning that, that as we read in Luke 19, turning your Bibles to Luke 19, verse 11, I, I, I pray that this text, it's a complex text. There's a lot of details. I feel like even as I, as I prepared it, 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 it kind of drags on. But honestly, I, I pray that it hits us this morning and that it, it stirs our heart to honor the Lord day by day with our lives by stewarding the gospel well. My main point this morning is this. Today, today Jesus is commanding his people to pursue a fruitful life in light of his coming kingdom. Today, Jesus is commanding his people to pursue a fruitful life in light of his coming kingdom. Please follow along in Luke 19 as I read through verses 1 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they, were supposed, uh, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minute has made ten minutes more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minute from him, and give it to the uh, one who has ten minutes. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Main point today, Jesus is commanding his people to pursue a life, uh, to pursue a fruitful life in light of his coming kingdom. As we begin in verse 11 this morning, we notice that Luke wants us to know that Jesus is about to tell us a parable. Not only that, but Luke also provides some key information about how we might understand this specific parable, often called the parable of the minas. For instance, the first important detail that Luke provides is the environment and context in which this parable is about to be told. 
Luke wants us to know the parable is told in response to the things that those listening have just heard. He denotes this in verse, verse 11, as, as you can read, uh, by writing, as they heard these things, as they heard these things. And naturally, as, as we approach such a text, we, we should ask, what, what are these things? What are these things that the audience has just heard? Well, we should recall from last week that Jesus just openly said that salvation had come to the house of Zacchaeus. This would have been shocking to, uh, to a primarily Judy, uh, Jewish audience because tax collectors would have been the last people that would have been characterized as having received salvation. Yet we know that as Jesus spent a day with Zacchaeus, everything changed for him. We, we literally witnessed a miracle in the text last week. As Zacchaeus came to know Jesus, he began to love him and desire to follow him. He, he repented of his sins and he trusted in Christ. This was evident by witnessing the incredible fruit that he bore. No longer was Zacchaeus living for his own kingdom. He was living for the kingdom of God. For once, he was submitting to the true king. For once, he was making eternal investments. Rather than hoarding his riches for himself, he gave away half of his net worth to the poor. Rather than increasing the size of his barns, he sought out those that he wronged and paid them four times the amount that he defrauded them in restitution. Friends, only Jesus, only Jesus can do this to a man. Only Jesus. However, perhaps the most glaring thing that Jesus said that caused the listening ears to perk up a bit was this. That the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Very into that passage of Zacchaeus. This is what Jesus says. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. One might wonder, is that a phrase or a, a topic that Jesus simply pulled out of the air? Or does it have some prophetic significance to the Jewish people? Friends, we should consider Ezekiel 34. You don't need to turn there, but this is where the Lord sharply criticizes the shepherds of Israel. Those shepherds of Israel, these are the religious leaders, the kings, the priests, etc. in Israel, who the Lord condemns for feeding themselves. While the sheep, who are the general population of Israel, while they starve. I don't have time to read through all of all of Ezekiel 34 in this sermon, but I would highly encourage you this week in your personal study, maybe later today or throughout this week, to open Ezekiel 34 and, and study it for yourself. I think it would be very edifying. But through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord in part, in part, blames the exile of the Israelites on the fact that those who were supposed to lead Israel in righteousness did not do their job. They did not do their job. Instead, they were self-indulgent and evil. God describes it as if the sheep had no shepherd at all. Because of this, the Lord describes the, shepherd, the shepherds as predators and the Israelites as sheep who are in danger of them. Because of this, the Lord says he is against the religious leaders in Israel. Yet in spite of the lack of obedience by Israel's evil shepherds, God makes a promise to his people. God makes a promise to seek and to save his people. Specifically, in Ezekiel 34.12, Ezekiel writes, As a shepherd seeks out his flock, 
when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. He continues in Ezekiel 34, 16, where God says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. How would the Lord do this? Well, in Ezekiel 34, 23, God tells us how. He says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. To recap, the Israelites were were looking for a Messiah who would seek and save the Jewish people, who would be from the line of David. Now we might recall as Jesus entered into Jericho, he he was greeted by the shouting blind man as what? The son of David, as Pat preached about a few weeks ago. During Jesus' short stay here, the people in Jericho have seen a man pronounced to be the son of David who is now leaving the town and saying that he came to seek and to save the lost. They also knew that Jesus was a man who performed miracles, healed the sick, made the lame to walk, gave the, the blind sight, and preached with authority and with power. He was also a man who proved not to be very fond of Israel's religious establishment at the time, which was evident by his interactions with the Pharisees. We might also consider, as Luke 19 tells us, that Jesus was on his way where? To Jerusalem. See, this was very significant, and its significance was not lost on anyone around Jesus there in Jericho. 2 Samuel 5-6 through 6 constantly refers to Jerusalem as the city of David. We know that Jerusalem was a very important city in Israel's history. Its religious and political importance cannot be understated. Of course, it was where David reigned. It was where the ark was taken and the temple was built by Solomon. It was where the new temple was built in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it was still where the Israelites would go and worship and make sacrifices at the time of Jesus. So when the Israelites start to put all of these pieces of the puzzle together, What is the likely conclusion that they would come to? Well, from from Luke's notes here in Luke 19, it appears that they thought Jesus was about to bring the kingdom in its fullness. Seemed to be the logical conclusion. They believed that Jesus was about to conquer all of Israel's enemies and reign in Jerusalem and bring final peace to the people of Israel. They believed the time had come that in, in one fell swoop, the kingdom would arrive in totality. However, the reason that Jesus gives this parable of the minas was mainly because they assumed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Logically, it appears that Jesus wants the hearers to understand that the kingdom will not come the way they think it will. Instead, Jesus highlights that while there does come a day that the kingdom will indeed come in its fullness, there is an aspect of the kingdom that would be present in their lives. This aspect of the kingdom was alluded to by Jesus in Luke 17, 20, where he told the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom was very real and present at that time. But there was also an aspect to come. 
In other words, the kingdom was already, but not yet. However, in this parable, the parable of the minas here in Luke 19, he also wants them to understand something. In spite of this reality of the coming kingdom, it will come in its fullness with great consequence. It will. And it will come with great consequence. Therefore, they must live in honor of the king today in great anticipation of the king returning. In fact, the things that we treasure today, church, the things that we treasure today, and the way we live our lives in response will greatly impact how we feel about Christ when he brings his kingdom in its fullness. So with these contextual remarks, let's get into the primary portion of the parable this morning. Point one, if you're taking notes. Jesus calls us to steward the gospel in this life. Jesus calls us to steward the gospel in this life. In verse 12, Jesus begins this story with a mention of a nobleman who went into a country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. Immediately, such a story would resonate with the Jews of that time because of their political context. James Edwards, in his, in his commentary on Luke, he notes this, The custom of client rulers journeying to power brokers in distant lands in order to be appointed as king was a familiar convention in vassal states like Palestine. Three members of the Herodian dynasty, Herod the Great, uh, Archelaus, and Antipas, had traveled to Rome on such errands. In other words... The Jews were familiar with Archelaus and Herod the Great, who both traveled to Rome in order to receive the right to rule in Israel. The Jews weren't happy about them ruling in Israel. Their hearts did not desire to submit to Herod, and they recognized his corruption. In fact, the Jews didn't like being ruled by Rome at all. This story would resonate with them. Perhaps the most important aspect of this parable is identifying that the nobleman represents Jesus here. How do we know that? Well, we, we know from Daniel 7.14 that Jesus would be the one who was given dominion in a kingdom that would never pass away. We can also point to Luke 22.29 where Jesus tells his disciples that the Father assigned a kingdom to him. Finally, we can Consider Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where the resurrected Christ tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Given. He's received it. He's been, it's been given to Jesus. In other words, Jesus was the only one that Scripture speaks of that actually receives a kingdom. Receives this kingdom. He was the only one who had authority. He received that kingdom from God the Father. He is the one whom we patiently wait for to return and bring his kingdom in its fullness. Jesus is the nobleman here. However, what, what's particularly interesting, church, is this, that the parable places a great emphasis on the time between the noble, the time when the nobleman leaves and when he returns. That's the focus of the parable this time. I believe that this time represents the time between Jesus' first and second coming. 
This time here represents the period between Jesus being resurrected from the dead and ascending to the Father to the time where he brings back his kingdom in its fullness. In emphasizing this time period, Jesus speaks of of the nobleman calling ten of his servants whom he had authority over to draw near to him for instruction. Come on, servants, I'm going to bring ten of you over here. As the ten servants gathered around the nobleman before he set off on his journey, the nobleman handed out ten minas to the ten servants. Each of the ten servants received one minute to steward until the nobleman returns from his journey. A mina, it was an amount, it was an amount of money. In fact, it was, it was equal to 100 denarii. We might recall that a denarii was roughly what a Jew would receive for a day's wages. Therefore, we can say that a mina was worth roughly 100 days worth of work. So the nobleman entrusted each servant with a fairly large amount of money to steward while he was gone. Not only did the nobleman give ten servants each a minna, he gave them instructions as well. He called the servants to engage in business while, until I come. From this Greek word, engage in business, we get the English word pragmatic, pragmatism. He wants them to put the minas to work in a profitable way. He wants it to work. He wants wants it to be fruitful. Think of it this way. The nobleman will demand a profit from the servants with what the minas he has given to the servants to steward while he's gone. This nobleman is demanding profitability. Demand. So specifically, what is Jesus communicating to those listening to the parable? What does this mean for us? I believe that the servants represent all the people that would profess to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In the time between Jesus' first and second coming, they are given something to steward. Church, we are given something to steward right now. What are we called to steward? I believe the object to be stewarded is the truth of God's word. Mainly, the truth of the gospel. I believe Jesus is speaking to those who have received the good news of the gospel. They have heard it accurately preached. They have heard and seen that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. They have heard the call to repent of their sins and follow Jesus. And more specifically, if the application of this sermon takes place between Jesus' first and second coming, it naturally takes place after Christ's death burial, and resurrection, and ascension to heaven. They have heard the truth of God's word, and they are without excuse. In light of the reception of the truth of God's word, church, Jesus is calling his disciples to not just hold on to this truth, not just hold it, not not, not to put it in your pocket, not to just kind of put it up on a shelf, you know, like an old baseball trophy. Jesus is calling for that truth to actually produce fruit. Actually produce fruit. The question is, is Jesus calling for an internal personal fruit or an external fruit as a result of missions and evangelism? Well, I I heartily believe that the answer is both. The answer is both. 
Briefly, let's discuss several ways that the truth can be fruitful in the lives of Jesus' disciples. First, a right reception of the gospel will produce internal personal fruit. I think Jesus has in mind something similar to what he said in Luke 8 as he gave the disciples the parable of the sower. Jesus is calling those listening here in Luke 19 to be like the good soil in Luke 8 who are described as those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. In other words, the reception of the gospel should radically change you personally. Better yet, a right reception of the gospel will change you personally. To truly have Jesus as our Lord and Savior is to truly love him above everything else. If that is the case, as we receive the word of God, it does something in us. It really does. As as I said last week, it literally changes everything about us. It really does. And I literally mean that. The greatest object of the affection of our hearts changes when we come to Christ. All of a sudden, Christ is no longer our enemy, but our greatest love our greatest desire, our greatest joy. In response, we desire to worship him, make much of him, and know him in a deeper way through his word. Not only that, but we desire to display the character of Christ in our own lives by the power of the Spirit. The desire for a Christian. That's why Paul can tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11 to what? To pursue To pursue. Make an active pursuit. Be diligent to what? Pursue righteousness. To pursue godliness. To pursue faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. That's why Paul can tell Timothy to to fight the good fight of faith. To take hold. To actually take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. What is he saying? To, To actually live like you have eternal life. What he's saying here. It makes a difference in your life. It's not just a change in destination that you will see one day, but that it should be the most ever-present reality in your life today that, that you are a child of God and you will live forever with Him. That's what he says here. And in fact, he says this: I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from approach when until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul's interpreting what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 19. We're going to pursue righteousness until Christ returns. That's God's will for the church. That's God's will for us this morning. But not only that we pursue it, not only that, but Paul also writes to the Galatian church and tells them that they will bear fruit. They will. They will bear fruit if they have the Holy Spirit. We know this. In Galatians 5.22, he writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, church, those who belong to Christ will bear fruit. They will. Is this not what happened to Zacchaeus just a few verses earlier? After one encounter with Jesus Christ, this wretch named Zacchaeus is personally changed to the point where he no longer desired wealth 
but he desired to honor Christ above all else. This is true of Christians. This is just true of Christians. How do we apply this? Well, Christian, I ask, is your life characterized by an intentional pursuit of righteousness? Is it? Is your, is your life characterized by an intentional pursuit of righteousness? Do you desire to grow in holiness? Is that what you strive for? Is that what you pray for? See, God's plan for you is not that you would simply fixate your mind on the reality that God will one day make you righteous in eternity future. Well, that's for something else in the future. And his plan is not for you to become frustrated in your sanctification in this life because you will never achieve perfection. God's word calls us to diligently pursue Christ in the scriptures for the purpose of edification and worship and transformation. May the pursuit of holiness and the glory of God in our lives be our utmost pursuit as we leave this place this week, church. Second, a right reception of the gospel will likely produce the fruit of conversions among the people of God as well. How does this happen? Well, if the word of God is truly received by his people with joy and is bearing internal fruit among the people of God, the most natural response of the people of God is to proclaim the excellencies of the object of their joy. Say that again. If the word of God is truly received with joy and is bearing internal fruit among the people of God, then the most natural response of the people of God is to proclaim the excellencies of the object of their joy. This is a very natural response to a very supernatural reality. This is certainly what we see in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 42-47. What do we see there? We see the church. What do they do? Acts chapter 2, 42. And they devoted themselves. They what? They devoted themselves. There was devotion here. There was commitment here. There was action here. There was pursuit here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, doctrine, and fellowship, being around the people of God, to the breaking of bread and prayer, the normal Christian life. This is what it is. We get together, we open the Word of God, we read it, and we're transformed by it. We spend time with other people, we're edified, we pray that God will work, and see what happens. Acts, 40, Acts 2, 42, 43. And what happens in all? All came upon every soul. Isn't that amazing? They open the Word of God. They read it. They taught. They spend time with other believers. They pray. And, and they're in awe. There's no piano playing behind them back at the time, trying to conjure up emotions. There's no giant manipulation scheme here. There's no cool building. There's no nothing. There's no, there's no bells and whistles. There's, there's no flashy preacher. There's no banging on the pole. There, no, there's none of the, like, they, they, what happens? They learn the word of God. They pray. They spend time with other believers, and they're in awe. 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They were together and had all things in common. Isn't that amazing? There's unity. All of a sudden, they realize because of who they are in Christ, it just changes everything. It changes their relationship. Why? Because they study the Word of God, they pray, and they spend time together. Oh, and what happens? And they were selling their possessions. Oh, wow. They started selling their, you know, they started selling their tables and their, and their chairs and their shiplap and their acreage, and they started selling it all. It doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because we're almost home. And they just started distributing to proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, this wasn't a once a week thing. Like spending time with the people of God actually characterized the church. These are the people that they did life with. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And then what happened? And the Lord added to their number day by day to those who were being saved. Can we see this here? Day by day, they were faithful to pursue Christ in fellowship around the word with one another. And day by day, the Lord added to their number. We also see this in Acts 4 as Peter and John preach a sermon. One sermon, they go out and they preach the gospel. 5,000 souls were saved. 5,000 souls. Peter and the other disciples in Acts 5, they were jailed. But they were released and they, they continued to preach the gospel. And then beginning in Acts 6, even in light of that, we find that the disciples continued to increase in number. Even in the midst of persecution, they just continued to increase. Why? Because they just, they just shared the gospel. We can go to, we can go to Acts 1. We see that the, the, the disciples there, they're asking Jesus, when are you going to bring about the kingdom? When are you going to restore it to Israel? And Jesus is like, stop. You're going to actually go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all the ends of the earth. That's his plan. You're actually going to take this gospel, steward it. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. It says that in Matthew 28 as well, the Great Commission. Right before he ascends, he says this, that, that you're going to go and you're going to make disciples of all nations. That's what the Christians do. And Jesus isn't giving them some pipe dream here. This is, this is Christ's intent. This is, this is, Christ said he's going to build his church. This is how he's going to do it. He's going to send us. The best motivation for evangelism and missions is this church that Christ has promised that he would save sinners. That's what he's going to do. Are these stories in Acts and Matthew, are, are they just a coincidence? Or is this God's plan for his people? Is Jesus actually expecting us to make disciples of all nations? Is Jesus actually calling us to be missional? To bear missional fruit? To bear evangelistic fruit? Indeed, friends, he is. He is expecting us. This is God's will for us. This is God's will. This is God's will for your life. Christian, listen. This is God's will for your life. To make disciples. Not just the elders. Not just the preach team. Not just the youth leaders. If you are in Christ, if you are coming, you are partaking of this supper weekly, God's will for your life, friends, is that you would be a disciple maker. What do we do? 
Well, while here's the thing. While we can never control who comes to know the Lord and who doesn't, we know that the Lord saves sinners through the proclamation of the word of God. We also see that the Lord calls us and invites us to be a part of building his kingdom. And he seeks and saves the lost through us, church. Friends, who in your life, I gave you a spot to write it on on your paper if you have the notes. Friends, who in your life needs to hear the good news of the gospel? Oh, we all know somebody. We all know multiple people. I don't know. Yes, you do. Who in your life needs to be discipled? Where has God put you in order to be sent out from this body of believers to proclaim the word? Is it at work? Is it at school? Is it your baseball team? Is it at the grocery store? Is it your extended family? Too often, church, we're looking for complex evangelism strategies when the Lord has put so many people who need the gospel just right in front of us. May we remember, church, that it is not the workers who are plentiful, but the harvest. Our Savior reminds us that the workers are few. May we put our hand to the plow and joyfully seek to see fruit as a result of being on mission here in Kennesaw, Georgia. As Jesus continues this parable, we, we see that there are citizens of that kingdom who actually hate the nobleman. They hate him. It says that. In fact, they send a delegation after him boldly proclaiming that they don't desire to have the nobleman reign over them. Not at all. Interesting enough, whether these citizens liked it or not, whether they cared for it, liked it, didn't matter, they were still under his authority. They were living in open rebellion to him in the land of his authority because they hated him. Who do these citizens represent? Well, I believe they represent the majority of Israel. While we await a day when all of Israel comes to know Christ, according to Romans 11, the overwhelming majority of Israel since Christ has rejected Jesus. They do not desire to know Christ. They do not desire holiness. They are living in outright rebellion towards God. The citizens also represent everyone else who lives in this world that Jesus currently possesses all authority in and shakes their fist at God in rebellion. Like the majority of Israel, they are like those spoken of in Romans 1 who have no excuse to reject God because of God's common grace in revealing his attributes in this world. Yet, they do because their hearts are darkened and their minds are futile. So so far we've been introduced to all of the different characters in this parable. We have the the nobleman who represents Jesus. We have the servants who represent Jesus' disciples. We have the citizens who hate the noblemen who represent everyone who outwardly and boastfully simply rejects Christ altogether. We see that the servants have been tasked with producing fruit with the minna that they were given to steward. Next, we will see what happens when the nobleman returns with his kingdom. Point two. Point two, we will give an account to Jesus for how we have stewarded the gospel in this life. We will give an account to Jesus for how we have stewarded the gospel in this life. Here we see that the nobleman returns from receiving his kingdom. This represents Jesus' second coming. 
Of course, we, we know in Christ's return, church, that he's returning in full glory. His kingdom comes in all of its splendor. At this point, he, he does not come as a, as a savior seeking the lost. He comes as a gracious husband for his bride and a judge ready to bring wrath upon all those who rejected him. It is at this point where Jesus will also separate the sheep and the goats. He will identify the wheat and the tares, the lost and the found, the elect and the reprobate. And Jesus uses the rest of this parable to describe that reality. First, the nobleman calls all of the servants to himself. Brings the servants, come, come, I've returned, come, come. Why? To give an account. He brings them together to give an account on how they stewarded that minna. He did not forget about the minna. In all the process of receiving the kingdom, the journey to and the journey from, he didn't just forget about that minna. First thing he does when he gets back is he, is he calls them to give an account of how they stewarded the minna. The first, the first servant, he comes and he gives an account and he boasts that from one minna he was given, he made ten minutes. From one minna given, he made ten minutes. And the nobleman was very pleased with the servant and rewarded him by giving him authority over ten cities. Ten cities. Next, the second servant came and informed the nobleman that from his one minna, he was able to generate five minas. Again, the nobleman was very pleased and rewarded him by putting him in authority over five cities. Notice here that the nobleman isn't quite concerned with the exact amount of fruit that is generated. He doesn't comment on that. He's not, he's not comparing the amount of fruit here and the, the amount of fruit here. He's pleased with whatever profit they generated. The noblemen seemed most pleased that their effort indicated that they held the king in high regard. For that, they were rewarded handsomely. Can, can you imagine, church, for one moment how this must have felt for them? Can you imagine this? They were faithful and stewarding like a decent but modest amount of money. However, for stewarding this small amount of money, they were given multiple whole cities to steward as a result. Can you imagine? The blessing doesn't even come close to the effort put forth. The reward was so gracious and abundant. Friends, this represents all true believers who are in Christ Jesus. All who have been saved by his grace alone and washed in the blood of Jesus will experience such radical blessing and generosity at the coming of Christ. This is what awaits us, friends. We know this because all who are in Christ have received the Holy Spirit. They will bear fruit. They will walk in righteousness. They will obey the Lord. They will indeed sin, yet they will repent. They will be held fast in Jesus' hand where no one can pluck them away. They will confess their sins. They will daily experience the faithful mercy and forgiveness of God. Their hearts will be moved to proclaim the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. They will take up their cross daily and follow Him all the days of their lives. Why? Because they did it on their own strength? No! No, not at all, because what Christ accomplished on the cross actually worked. It actually worked. 
He purchased a people for his own possession. He created us. He did it for good works that we should walk in them. In church, Christ didn't fail. He didn't fail. He will say to us, like he said in, in Matthew 25, this is, what we, this is what we get to hear, church. If you are in Christ, this is what you will hear. He will say this, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Of us, it is true what is written in Revelation 5. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. In this kingdom, it is true that no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on, his fo- on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and forever. Friends, hear me. We will reign with Christ in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Is that not amazing? Why? Because he's gracious. Because of his work, not because of ours. But he does change us. This is what awaits us. This is what awaits us, church. May this reality, may this reality spur us on to know Christ more intimately and joyfully and proclaim Jesus' name every single day of our lives. Yet, there was another servant. There was a servant, another servant who gave an account for his stewardship. In fact, the Greek, this is where the Greek actually really is important to understand here. The Greek denotes that this servant was not like the other servants. He was radically different. This word for another, it actually means other. And there's an emphasis in it. It means other. It's, it is meant to, to bring a, a sharp contrast between the other two. Jesus is pointing out that this, is, this supposed servant is drastically different than the other two. It's not the same. He simply handed the minna the nobleman originally gave the servant right back to the nobleman. Same minna, here it is. Right back. And not only that, the servant confesses that he kept the minna in his handkerchief while the nobleman was gone. Can you imagine being so neglectful and careless and lacking in respect for the nobleman that you would simply wrap up that which he has called you to steward in something that you blow your nose with as if it were meaningless and useless. However, the servant has the audacity to try to explain his rationale. The servant explained that he kept the minna because he was afraid of the nobleman. He starts to rationalize and make all these different excuses and The servant grounds his supposed fear in the fact that the nobleman was a harsh man. He even makes a moral judgment about the nobleman. Basically calling him a lazy, bullying thief. It is clear from the description 
that the servant didn't actually fear the nobleman. In fact, in his heart, he had no respect for the nobleman. No matter how much lip service this servant tried to give the nobleman, his actions showed that the nobleman made no difference in the life of the servant. There's a lot of debate over who this third servant is. I'll give you my take. I believe that Jesus is speaking here of people who would profess to be Christians, but they don't actually love Jesus. Perhaps they grew up going to church. Perhaps they know a little bit about the Bible. Perhaps they are simply Southern, and for that reason they call themselves Christians. Perhaps they walked an aisle and said a prayer or raised a hand, professing to be a Christian. Perhaps they they have even been baptized. However, they have no love for Christ. They have no desire to follow Jesus and obey Him. They have never repented of their sin. They have no concern for holiness except for perhaps some outward expression of righteousness that others see for the purpose of highlighting their own goodness. They have no desire to share the gospel. They are apathetic towards the kingdom of God. In fact, they would not be moved at all if they found out Jesus wasn't in heaven just as long as they didn't have to go to hell. We call these people Nominal Christians, or Christians in name only. Explicitly, they are not true disciples of Jesus. They are not actually Christians. How does the nobleman respond to such a servant in the parable? He calls the servant out for his blatant dishonesty. In fact, he calls him wicked, that you are a wicked man. You are a wicked servant. Not good, not basically good, not faithful, wicked. The nobleman didn't believe a single word the servant said. He found his rationale completely illogical. For instance, if he really did fear the nobleman and believe that he was harsh, he would have done everything possible to make a profit in order to appease this harsh man when he returned. As the nobleman points out, he could have at least put the men in the bank and received this menial amount of interest. However, the biggest problem with his servant was that he was apathetic. That was the biggest problem. He was apathetic. He simply didn't care. He didn't have a verbal confession of rebellion towards the king like many of the other citizens. He wasn't taking up a pitchfork and and running out there and saying, I hate this guy. He didn't do that. He was simply apathetic. But in Jesus' eyes, apathy towards God is the same as hatred towards God. That's not what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to a life of apathy towards God. But clearly the servant's heart in actions showed that he didn't desire the nobleman to reign over him either. Because of this act of apathy and defiance by the servant, the king takes the small minna that the servant was given to steward, he takes it, takes it away from him, and gave it to the most faithful servant who already had ten minas. His blessing and reward would not be received, but taken away. This seems to be very indicative of many of the Jewish people. Even though they they gave God lip service, most of the Jewish people did not love God with all their heart, souls, mind, and strength. In spite of the fact they were given the law, they were given the prophets, they were giving the truth, they they rejected God. This This is evident by the way they felt about Christ where they ultimately put him on a cross. 
Even though they were the covenant people of God, most of them did not receive the covenant blessings of God. Most of them have rejected Christ. Romans 11 refers to how those Jews who rejected Christ have been broken off. It also says that Gentiles have been grafted in. Yet, of course, we do await a day when the Jewish people will collectively turn back to the Lord and trust in Christ. This is also true of anyone who claims to be a Christian, but doesn't actually love the Lord or follow him. Friends, your fruit, your fruit doesn't save you. But every Christian bears fruit. Every true Christian loves the Lord. It doesn't matter if you describe yourself as a Christian. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what you verbally proclaim. It's so different to God. If you don't truly and actually trust in Christ, you will not receive eternal life with him. That's why Jesus continues in the story. And he says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. Those who are blessed in Christ in this very moment, with joy and peace and hope, will only experience more blessing in the future. That is what awaits us, church. However, for those who are not in Christ now, this life is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets for you. And even this will be taken away from you. In fact, for those that are not in Christ, who who do not desire Christ to reign over you, Jesus has a sober warning at the end of this passage. Regardless of whether you recognize it or not, Jesus is Lord. Regardless of whether you acknowledge it, Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. He is in control. There's nothing you can do about it. He stands to offer grace to all who would call upon his name for salvation. My encouragement for you this morning would be to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. He will not turn you away. Yet, should you choose to remain in rebellious state against God, at Christ's return, you will experience the wrath of Almighty God. As we close, friends, what do we do with this passage? What do we do with it? It's fairly intense. And it's easy for such a, a long, drawn-out, detailed story to make us kind of check out. I get it. And a long story, I get it. I really do. However, Jesus is rather clear here. Church, he's clear. He expects his people to steward the gospel. He expects us to treasure the gospel because we treasure the king. He absolutely expects that we would be a disciple-making people. It's an expectation. This isn't optional. Some people don't like such blunt statements. They hear that Jesus requires something of us. And they instantly resort to straw man accusations of works righteousness and legalism. They see the call to faithfulness and perseverance in the Christian life as lacking in grace and placing an emphasis on self. They always find a way where every command is always taken out of context. 
They find obscure and foreign context to make sure that Jesus never means what he says and says what he means when he calls us to obedience. Friends, we must avoid such mindsets. The Christian life is not a list of do's and don'ts. We don't have a checklist faith. We have a Savior who came and took the wrath that we deserved. He saved us and he purchased us by his blood. He literally, literally brought us out of darkness and into light. We are actually his. He has literally made us a new creation. He has done that. His spirit is literally living inside of us. He literally created us for good works to walk in them. He didn't just create us for good works, but he expects us to walk in them. He has changed us and empowered us to put sin to death and to walk in obedience. He did it. He did it. Friends, it's not that we have to walk around in guilt-driven obedience. We get to walk around in newness of life. We get to proclaim the gospel. We get to live for the kingdom. Have to? Bro, you don't get it. We get to. The question is this, church. Will we? Will you? Will we be found faithful when Christ comes? Will we steward the gospel? Will we take the gospel to our friends and neighbors? Will we reach the lost church? We need not wait for the elders to tell us to do something. We need not wait for a greater strategy. We don't need someone to tell us where to go. Today, church, we have heard the word of God. We've heard it. Calling his people to lay it all on the line. And live to build God's kingdom today. God has spoken through his word this morning. He has given us assignment. He has given us a command. He has empowered us to do so. He has commanded us to do so. And our Lord and Savior, our King, our sovereign ruler expects us to obey Community Bible Church. And by his grace we will. He will sustain us. May we be found faithful, church. Does this excite you? I pray that it does. May his heart, may he change our hearts and empower us to go and joyfully proclaim the gospel. Amen? Amen.